Welcome to Series 5 of the Bible and Me podcast from Precept Ministries UK. The series that uses incredible life stories to give God the glory. Before we dive into this week's episode, if you haven't done so already, be sure to click that subscribe button so that you don't miss out on any of the amazing testimonies in the future. And now, without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, I am delighted to be welcoming uh, Rachel Hickson to the program today. Uh, Rachel, with her husband Gordon, travel internationally, training leaders, speaking at conferences, strengthening the church, and love the diversity of our different cultures. Rachel is an author of a number of books on prayer, freedom, peace, and one called Eat the Word, Speak the Word, which caught my eye. In 1990, she and her husband set up Heart Cry Ministries, which encourages churches to connect with their local community with a practical message of hope. Rachel loves Indian food, she loves dance, above all, she loves the Lord, and she loves people. Rachel, welcome to the program. Oh, it's so good to be with you. Thank you, Nigel. So, Rachel, with a father who was a missionary and a preacher, um, was it always going to be the case that you were going to be a follower of Jesus? How did you come to be a follower of Christ? Well, I grew up in India, quite a spiritual sort of atmosphere. My mum and dad were quite intentional about introducing us to Jesus. And I actually came and made a decision when I was four years old. Wow. <laughs> so we were living in the Baptist manse at that time. My, it was a Sunday evening. I don't remember the details, but I'm told this more than I remember it. My dad had gone down to preach at the 6.30 service. And we had a wonderful girl called Daya, who was sort of part of our family. And she's putting me to bed. And I've always been told that I turned to Daya and I said, I want Jesus to live in my heart and be as close to me as my pillow is right now. <laughs> and so I prayed that prayer of deep repentance for all my sex, drugs. No. <laughs> but, and that was my prayer. And that very simple prayer of Jesus be as close as my pillow changed my life. And so t- give us a flavour of what happened in your sort of early life and, and up to in the teens. So I was one of those um, children that had a very simple Jesus love. Jesus is always a little bit part of my world. At the age of 10, a man called Arthur Wallace came out to India and taught in the Holy Spirit. And I was a child sitting with the adults, giving my colouring and book. And I remember going up to him saying... Uncle Arthur, am I allowed the Holy Spirit too? And in his very gentle, beautiful way, he turned and prayed for me. And later that night, I woke up singing in tongues. And um, God had really filled me. And then I remember my dad was a Baptist minister going to him and saying, but dad, and I was terribly worried because I was reading the Bible for myself at this time. Dad, I've done it all wrong. You know, I've got Jesus, but I haven't been baptised and I've now got the Holy Spirit. What do I do? And I remember him talking to me about the house of Cornelius and saying it was all right. But he wasn't allowed to baptise me in the church because I wasn't 14. So he took me down to Jehu Beach and baptised me on the beach. Age 10. Age 10, yeah. I, I, was, I was confirmed. Well, I was baptised as a boy and then confirmed at 14 because that was the thing to do at school. Yeah. So I recognised sort of that age at 14. Yeah. And so that was a very precious time for me. Mm. And um, I then went on into my teen years. And that's obviously you begin to explore a little bit. I got bullied a bit for being a Jesus person. Mm. Um, the atmosphere in which I was wasn't very... Um, 
pro the things of the Holy Spirit. And to me, I was very childlike, innocent, and yeah. that had been my world. Mm -hmm. And so when people began to sort of criticise and think, I just went very quiet. Yeah. So whereas before I was quite bubbly, mm -hmm. everything got a little bit more internalised, just quiet. So I became a private Christian. <laughs> mm -hmm. Hid in the library a bit, did a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And then finally, it was when I was 17, back in the UK, I was up in the Dales Bible Week in, you know, summer camps. And it was one of those moments where I just felt God say, if you, let, if you give me your life, I can use you. And I just remember standing very definitely and saying, God, if you have me, I'll be yours. Mm -hmm. And so, Beautiful. yes, I, there was always a part of me that was Jesus given. Mm -hmm. But I got a little bit worried when I began to realise it could cause issues. And so I made it a bit secretive. <laughs> now, you, uh, after boarding school, um, you uh, read science at university. Yeah. Um, I failed my physics with the grade E at O level, so, uh, <laughs> so I'm in great admiration of anyone that does science. Um, and you met Gordon. Yes. Uh, your husband of, is it 40 years now? Um, 39, 39, so nearly there. <laughs> well, congratulations for that. And in 1984, uh, you were called to leave your jobs to serve God in Africa. Um, in October of that year, you attended a Reinhardt Bonke crusade, uh, during which your call was confirmed. And I just want to ask you two or three questions around that period. Yeah. Really. Um, how did you get to go to Africa, and how, how was your sort of call confirmed? First mm. question. Second question. What was it like being a Reinhard Bonker conference? <laughs> and there may be people listening to this that don't know about who he was yep. or what he did. And uh, the, the next question would be, um, I'm aware that something quite important or something very difficult happened the day after yeah. this conference. So Gordon and I were, um, I was a clinical biochemist working in St. Bartholomew's Hospital. Gordon um, had just left the <laughs> army and had set up his own business and was working in London. So we were both sort of professional people pioneering in London. And um, we picked up a book, and it was called Plundering Hell to Populate Heaven. And it was sort of our holiday reading, and it was by this man called Reinhard Bonker. I'd never heard of him. And he was like the Billy Graham of Africa. He sort of preached to these huge crowds. And as I read the story, because although I've always loved the Bible, read it all, and, you know, loved the healings, miracles, stories, acts, it was like reading a present-day book of Acts. You know, he had prayed over the, the blind and... Eight blind people were authenticated, and there were sort of these, in those days, a bit dismal videos, but you could see people were being really touched, and so my curiosity was aroused. So we sort of said, well, why don't we take six weeks off work and just go see? And um, so that's what we did. Went to volunteer in Harare, Zimbabwe, 1984, and we turned up there. What was the Reinhardt Bonker Crusade? I discovered two things, the power of prayer. Because behind the front room, they had what they call the generator room. And they had about 800 to 1,000 people in this tent who just prayed for God to break through, for his presence to come, to pray for healings. Often we would be there, someone would read a scripture. I always remember one night when someone came in and said, God's given me the scripture from Malachi and the 
the lane will leap like cars of the storm. We spent maybe two hours just praying, God, touch every leg, touch every spine, just do something. When we walked out of that tent at the time of the altar call, we'd sort of stand round the periphery of the crowd and just pray that then God would birth what we'd been praying. Suddenly, Reinhardt, who was on the platform, just stopped and he said, and we had a special area where we'd keep people who were crippled in that so they wouldn't get crushed. It was sort of wrecked up. He said, I want the special area to my right-hand side. Those who've been in the prayer tent, I mean, he had no idea what we'd been praying. Would you come down to the special area and just begin to pray? Because I believe that God wants the lane to leap tonight. And suddenly, here I was, having prayed, and within two hours, seeing it done. And that shifted something in me. And so the sort of curiosity that said, God, that started at 17, God, if you can use me, have me. Now we're married, we're going, we're quite professional, we're doing well, but we've got a hunger for more of God. Mm-hmm. Suddenly we get there and we think, you are, it, this is actually happening. <laughs> I'm touching, I actually saw that. And so we went down and stood, and I, I will never forget to this day, 25 people in all various st- shapes of quite hideous um, deformities, ble- you know, people horribly crippled because of where they've been. And literally, the thing I will never forget was not so much the walking, was the bones cracking. I heard the sound of as literally the Holy Spirit was recrafting bones and things, and people got up and walked. And it changes your life. And I watched something that day, and I thought, I'll give my life for this. And so both Gordon and I just thought, if God can use us, we're happy to go home, sell everything and come. And literally the next day, we got run over by a seven-ton army truck when we were ministering first aid outside the home where we were staying. So let me just stop you there. So you had gone out for six weeks. Yeah. You'd seen prayer happening. Yeah. Reinhardt, and he's German, wasn't he? Yeah, he's German evangelist. German evangelist, okay. He'd been in South Africa for a while, and then he was beginning, his motto was, Africa will be saved from Cape Town to Cairo. And, and then you, you see prayers being answered very yeah. directly yeah. in a, in a, in a, a supernatural, supernatural yeah. incredible way. You then decide this is actually what we want to give our lives to. Yeah. And as you say, the very next day, yeah. what, somebody was ill? Or? Well, we, we were living in a house, and um, so we were just on, it was about 10.30 um, at night. We yeah. were going to bed. And we heard this massive crash outside at the traffic intersection of the home. Yeah. So they came knocking on the, the gates and said, come help yeah. us. So as we went out to help the people who'd been injured at the traffic lights, yes. a drunk driver in a military truck came down the hill through the lights and ran us over. 40 miles an hour in a military truck. So and I was just in the road. Killed, really. Oh, yeah. Absolute miracle. Um, the, the funny thing was, as that truck hit me, my head is, save your knees, save your knees. So I'm literally putting my hands on the hood of the front of the truck, lifting myself up, and the, the truck just went... Tuk, 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 tuk. So I broke my leg, two compound fractures, five fractures up here, and three in this one. So everything pretty well from my hips down was pretty shattered and didn't look great. And, and what happened then? I mean... Well, bless their hearts, and people came out. 
I always remember this wonderful guy who had a Volvo, the E-flat thing. They got some planks of wood, put me on and took me to the hospital, Patanetha Hospital. Mm-hmm. And um, they, I mean, they began to set me straight, looked okay. And then the next morning I woke up and I just, my memory was, I'm going to be sick. And I thought, oh, goodness, and this poor nurse. And I just projected, I vomited everywhere. And then I went out and apparently... What caused that was something called multi-fat embolisms. And the emboli, the fat tissue from the bones, had got into my bloodstream, into my brain stem. And so it's like pulmonary embolism, coronary embolism. So, I mean, your, your brain could have given up, your heart could have given up an easy Everything. It was com- so my brain stem was completely blocked by this fit tissue. So I was minimal brain activity, you know, in and out flatlining for five days. Oh, my goodness. Hmm. So out for four or five days, really just completely out of it. Yeah. In, they put me in a side room with a wonderful black African mama nurse to just watch over me to tell them when it was done. And um, the church carried on praying. And five days later, you woke I up? I woke up. And my first memory on that morning was dawn. And I remember looking out at the jacaranda trees. And I'd never really seen jacaranda trees and it was October in Harare. And I'm just thinking, what is that? Where am I? What's happened? And this dear black nurse just got out that chair, screamed and hit the doors running because she was there to watch me die and not wake up. <laughs> I mean, that really is... I mean, what strikes me is you've just seen God move in an extraordinary way. And you just literally committed your life to him. Yeah. You made a resolution, right, we're going to go home, we're going to settle him, we're going to yeah. commit our lives, and then that happens. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? You think of some biblical examples. Uh, mm. I think of Abraham, particularly. He's called yeah. the Herbie Chaldees, and he gets yeah. to the land of Canaan. Yeah. And he set out, we know from Acts, he set out not knowing where he was going. Yeah. And he, he journeys by faith, he gets into the land of Canaan, and God confirms to him that he's in the place where God wants him to be, yeah. And then we know in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, now there was a great famine in the land. land. Well, how does that work? He's called, he's in the place God wants him to be, and yet there's a great famine. Yeah. You know? But I think God calls you, and I think in some senses that opposition is a compliment. Because if God wants you, the devil doesn't. Because it's now, he, you've made him scared. And so as you step to the front line... It's a bit uh, the other one I think of is Luke 3 and Luke 4, because Jesus comes down to the Jordan. He stands, gets baptized. Holy Spirit descends. God the Father speaks over him and says, Wow, Jesus, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. Luke 4, and Jesus was led of the Holy Spirit into a garden, into a wilderness. And so often, and to be tempted by the devil. And what's the first thing the devil says? Huh. If you are the son of God, had a major, can you imagine that encounter after 30 years? Daddy, his heavenly father, this is my son. Mm. You know, the Joseph earthly father suddenly is dimming and the heavenly father coming in for perspective. Wow, such a significant, like for us, that night, people being here, it was like that, wow, this is my daddy, this is my God. Yeah. Such this a heaven open. This yeah. is what he's able to do. Do. Wow. See that. And then the next minute, it's like slap. You think 
you've got life, I can kill. And it's like in the very place where God says, this is my son, the devil loves to come and say, if you are, so you think you're going to live, I'm going to kill you. And we have to wrestle it. (laughs) Story of Job, you know. Yeah. Job walking as a righteous man. Mm-hmm. And then God says, well, yes, yes you, you can, you know, have you considered my servant Job? Mm-hmm. And then all the things that happened to him, you know. Yeah. Goodness me. Um, now, um, there was clearly a, a period of recovery from that, um, from that horrific accident, I guess, a period of time where your body needed to yeah. heal. It's about, um, the, instant, the incredible thing was that my brain was instantly healed, but my legs weren't. And so to learn to work again was about four years. Um, about 18 months of that was in a wheelchair and then slowly progressing. But we did return to the mission field, even though I was still not well, totally done. Be, <laughs> I mean, you went on to serve in his team, Rana Bonker's team of Christ Formations as, as crusade directors. Yeah. Um, can you give us a sort of taste of what one of these crusades was like? I mean, you mentioned the one out in Zimbabwe, but just a flavour, maybe a couple of countries or the yeah. numbers of people, maybe. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like Glastonbury <laughs> maxed. <laughs> I mean, so what are you doing? You go in there and you organise everything from the permits, the platform, electricity, loose, transport. So... A lot of stuff doesn't look very glamorous. You're sure. just doing plain, Gordon, basic... Gordon being in the army. Gordon army, had it nailed, <laughs> you know, and loved all the challenges because you've also got in Africa with all the different complexities yeah. of getting equipped. So you're drilling holes. I mean, we used things from fields to tents to all sorts of stuff. And so there's all the very, very practical stuff logistics. of that... Co- logistics. logistics not yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's just sheer hard work, blood, sweat, tears... And then there's all the church side of actually, you know, we don't just want to preach gospel and walk away. We want to actually provide homes and space. So we would go in about nine months before and then meet the churches, try to bring them together in a unity, find people who would do all the practical stuff like stewarding, car parking, all that. And then all the counselling, aftercare, prayer teams, choirs, musicians. And so craft the whole thing. Crowds, well, when we first started, it was about 25,000. That was in Zimbabwe. We went to then Malawi, Malawi Miracle in Blanta, and um, we were refused the main stadium, so we had to do it on a field, which in the end was the graciousness of God because our first crowd was 90,000, going up to 150. We then went up to Nairobi, and they gave us Uhuru Park, it was quite prophetic because Yuhuru in Swahili means freedom. And so we went there, 200,000 people turned up. And then President Moy turned up with his entourage to see what was happening in his nation. And we had no chairs. And so we had to panic and go across to um, the Pan Pacific Hotel and say, please. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we had all sorts of incredible encounters for miracles, favour, and just the hunger of God. Really? We went to Malaysia. We went to um, Philippines, Lynetta Park, where Cardinal Sin, and that actually was his name. No. <laughs> yeah, Cardinal Sin, oh, no. dedicated Lynetta Park to Mary. Yeah. And six weeks later, we did a crusade there, and we dedicated to Jesus, Jesus and saw his power just flow through. 
So two hundred thousand. I think I don't know what Wembley Stadium seats. I've got no idea. Maybe it's fifty, sixty thousand. Yeah, that something like that. So, yeah, I mean that. Those are huge crowds. Huge oh, was it, was crowds. This, would this be a a one day, a two day, a three day thing? Or um, what? usually five days. Five days. Um, towards the end, in the early days, seven to ten days. Often we'd pray and just get a spiritual climate of the atmosphere because sometimes you needed to just start people on a journey. And then we'd always have a night that we called Holy Spirit Night where we'd ask for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, We also would have a special needs area. Mm -hmm. And often this was used for helping people get free of witchcraft, fetiches and sort of African tribal stuff. I remember one of my early memories was a 40-year-old man who was deaf and dumb and his mother bought him, um, never spoken in his life. And um, I immediately, I and an African pastor were praying and um, I just said, there's something around his waist that's tied him. And I hadn't realised, but in this certain tribe, they took the skin of a snake and tied it and they had dedicated the life of their first god to the snake god. And so... When we said that needs to cut and he will be freed, the mother was terrified because if you hadn't, don't give your first child, then you die. And so, but we said, but Jesus is greater. And I remember just watching literally the sweat. She took the scissors and together they agreed to cut this. And as they cut it... So it was a physical... Yeah, literally they take the skin off the snake to which they sacrifice. The snake eats the blood from the placenta. As and, a dedication. And he, he had this round him. And he had it wrapped round him. Physically around his, his waist. All the time. All the time. And he never spoken or heard. He was deaf and numb. I can see what's coming up. And they cut it. And as they together, and we said, in Jesus' name. So he cut it. Immediately he could hear. So the first thing he heard was Reinhardt say, Jesus. So he's trying to mouth it. And he just stood there crying as he's imitating the sound of the microphone, crying Jesus. And we, he now is one of the... If you go to Blantyre Market and you meet a man, he's called Abraham, called himself Abraham, with his little track thing, and he preaches Jesus everywhere. <laughs> I can see the tears in your yeah. eyes as you remember that story. Absolutely wow. mm. amazing, isn't it? Absolutely. What, so, what, what an amazing God we worship. Now, in 1993, you set up Heart Cry Ministries. Mm. What led you to do this? And tell us a little bit about Heart Cry Ministries. So Gordon and I returned to England in 1990 and moved into the Watford area where we became um, pastors of four churches in that area, of Watford, St Albans, Hemel Hempstead. We were in Watford at that time. Oh, were you? Yeah, we lived in Watford, went to Bushy Baptist. Oh, yeah. and so we were West Hearts Community Church. Okay, right. So I wish I'd known that. <laughs> in um, <laughs> Girls' Grammar, and I know Bushy Baptist too. And um, so we began to do it, but on returning... I suddenly discovered there were so many incredible people in the church. I felt quite young because I was 30. The average age of our congregations were certainly older than me. And I began to discover there were all sorts of heart cries within people that had never been expressed. So initially, it was just to help train people to discover their Jesus language and enable them to do what they were made to do. So some people began to work amongst children. Some people worked amongst prisons. Some people began to do more social action. We started um, something um, called, um, oh, Hope, I think it was, a charity in Watford. Mm -hmm. Soul Survivor came to work with us, and we began working with Mark 
Mike Bulavacci and Matt Redman and those. And so it was just the releasing of the hidden heart cries and finding our Jesus voice. Mm. And then um, more and more, we began to do training stuff at High Lee, Swanick and that sort of thing. And so people say, well, what is heart cry? And often I respond, well, what's yours? <laughs> and discover that Jesus-centric heart cry and then get trained. Find a voice for it mm. and serve. And serve the Lord in, in what God has gifted maybe you with. gifted you to do, but you haven't been able to do it for various circumstances or reasons or confidence quite often an opportunity. Yeah. Well, well, well. Um, now you've written a number of books on, on yeah. a range of different subjects on prayer and prophecy, uh, freedom mm. and the word. The, and we could spend hours talking about all of those, but Eat the word, speak the word, caught my, caught my attention <laughs> clearly as a ministry. That's what we seek to do, encourage people to do that. Tell us a little bit about that book. Well, I'd written a few books and then the publisher came to me and said, we want a book on prophecy. Cause, and I thought about it and there's great books on prophecy. And then I just thought, and I said to them, but actually I'd love to do the word and spirit. I'd love to do actually how we eat, how that word gets in us. Because unless the word of God gets in us, then how can the word of the Lord flow through us? And so um, it is a book where I just train people for the, how to grip that word of God. I took, you know, some of the simple ways of navigators of, you know, clutch that word. We need to hear it. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to memorise it. You know, quite often mem memorising is like, oh, that was the old thing. But there's something very powerful of memorised scripture. They say, oh, I'm too old, I can't memorise. But I often say to people, well, just when you're reading a verse, it doesn't have to be every day, but maybe choose one word, verse during that week that just goes, da-da-da-da, it suddenly seems that it's got a highlight pen on it. And you just hear it. I mean, like today I preached on um, Proverbs 4.23. You know, above all else, guard your heart. Um, NLT or the New Living Translation say, for it directs the course of your life mm. or something more like the NASBY or NIV says mm. for it is the wellspring yeah. of life, mm. it is the resource it's mm. an overflow mm. and so how do I know that? Because I memorise how do you do it? I just think put it in significant places, so take that verse, just put it on your bathroom put it on your car, put it on your fridge and it's amazing that subliminally you just absorb it. And I say, if you do that once a week, you most we can learn a, a, a verse a week. Why do we need to do that? Because I always say the thumb is meditation. And often we think that meditation is for new age gurus. You know, we're a bit worried. But actually all the way through the Bible it says, you know, resonate, think, reflect, chew. stir, it's chew, it's eat. Cow yeah. Cow chewing the cutters. Yeah. And speaking it out loud. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so, you know, people say, oh, the Bible's boring. I say, and it's not. You just need to change the way you're doing it. Yeah. If you sat in the same chair drinking the same cup of coffee at the same time every day, the same time, sure, right, it's boring. <laughs> change, maybe change your translation, change your chair, begin to listen to it. Because, you know, some people say, oh, I've really struggled with the book of Hebrews. I say, well, don't read it, listen to it. Mm. And then suddenly it makes you curious, and then you can go back and read or study it. Yeah. And, you know, then we can grip it. But I think all the way through, you know, meditation can go with hearing. Meditation can go with study. Meditation can go with the memory. Meditation can go with the 
the reading. I always say the meditation's that done, then you can grip it, you can hold it. We are doing this interview at uh, the Reefer Conference in Scotland, and actually mm. um, we're doing a series of studies, seminars here called Gripping God's oh. Word. <laughs> Gripping God's Word. Mm. And, um, you know, I think there are a lot of folks out there, as probably you know, uh, who struggle to read and study the Bible. Yeah. They struggle to, med- uh, to, to memorize scripture. One of the things that we've been taught is to... Um, uh, as you did, pick a, pick a verse and maybe and write it out and, and say it maybe five or six times in the morning, yeah. five or six times at lunchtime, five or six times in the evening. And after two or three days, the chance are you've probably got it. Uh, yeah. Maybe not to start too big, you know, huge chunks, but yeah. as you say, just a verse or, or part yeah. of a verse even. And, and as you say, the Holy Spirit can then take that yeah. at the appropriate time and bring it to a memory and it can be very powerful. And it? sometimes it's for someone else. Because then you eat the word and then you speak it. And you could be in a cafe or something else and you say, you know, sweetheart, I just really noticed that you look a bit stressed or whatever. But I really felt that Jesus would love to say to you, you know, if you cast all your cares on him, he really cares for you. You know, just throw it. And suddenly that word is now not just a verse in the Bible, but it's become a word of encouragement, sustaining, help. So someone who maybe doesn't really know their full Jesus story yet, mm-hmm. but they just look at you and think, oh, wow. Yeah, God really does care for you. Mm-hmm. You know, don't carry it. Give it away. Yeah. God says to you, gives you permission, cast, throw all your worries and fears. Throw them my way because I really care for you. Mm-hmm. If people wanted to get that book, how would they get hold of it? Is it still, it's, if you go to my website, okay. Heart Cry for Change, yeah. Um, you can get it through the website. I think it's still through Amazon. Yeah. The publisher, Lion Hudson, unfortunately has just gone through a shift change oh. of publication house. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite sure yeah, yeah. through which website, but definitely through Heart Cry for Change you can get it. Brilliant. Eat the Word, Speak the Word by, um, by Rachel here. So, and and uh, obviously as a ministry precept, we help people. So if you're here listening, well, you know what, I'd love to be able to study the Word Rachel's talking about, then please contact us as well. We've got a wide range of, of resources to help you do just that. Um, now, simple question. Mm. Why is the word of God important to you? I think as like I was telling my story, I've had quite a lot of stuff in life. I lived in a boarding school. I didn't have a lot of my mum and dad Um, affirmation, caring, kindness. My boarding school was pretty stark, austere, critical environment. Was that in England? No, it was in India. India, So it was in India. Mm. So it was that real sort of old missions boarding school, quite hard. Mm. And I learned very early on, because we did Sowers League and all these sort of there's a terrible competitive side of me, I have to admit. And so you got brownie points and one badges and things for doing memory verse because it was a missionary boarding school. Mm. But I also found that beyond that, I love the sound of the Bible because it spoke into places that I wasn't being spoken into. And so I, I learned to love the Psalms. I learned to love um, the Gospels. I love John. And I didn't really understand, but it was that sound of Jesus saying, it's okay, Rachel, I've got you. You know, I'm a door, I'm your shepherd. And I was quite reflective and I didn't realise, but that's why that thumb of meditation helped me grip, because I would think about these things. Mm -hmm. And so from a young age, 
that Jesus sound was important to me. Mm. And although at times it was triggered by all the, so as these Bible competitions, there was a deep something that ran in me that loved that sound. Mm. And it gave me hope in time of trouble. Wonderful. I mean, do you have, you mentioned John's Gospel, but do you have a favourite... Um, you have a book that particularly you would say, you know, if you're on Desert Island, you're yeah. one of one of the, one of the books, books, you know, a favourite Bible book, or even maybe a favourite Bible character. I think that's always a mean question, because <laughs> when a preacher says it, then the next time you say it, say it different. I think Isaiah is one of my favourite ones, just because of that prophetic sound. But, you know, I just love just how Isaiah thinks. I love that sort of prophetic thing. I love his cry for a nation in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died. And you sort of then think, what was happening in the year King Uzziah died? And he suddenly realised it's so like so many of us because King Uzziah had held so much together. But now he was dead, all hell was going to break loose. There were a whole lot of nations that were all about to get their revenge. You know, there was political mayhem that would cause economic. Israel being a very agricultural, you suddenly think... Oh, my word, life was just about to kick off. And Isaiah just says, I'm not going to look at all that. I'm going to look up. <laughs> I saw God, and he's a big God, and he could save me. And so I just loved his perspective. I loved that prophetic sound. So Isaiah would most probably be the one I'd want characters. Again, I like Peter because it gives me an excuse to get it wrong, and I do. <laughs> I like Deborah because I love a cheek that can... You know, just she's a model of a judge, a prophet, she is. incredible she leader. Yeah, and I love her mummy heart that says, you know, I stood up when village life had ceased, but I'm a mummy of my nation. So, yeah. Different. It's full yeah. of full of full of characters, isn't it? The Bible that you can and actually that speak to us maybe different seasons of our life. Yes, you know. I think that's true. Um, that would be my excuse for picking a different one. <laughs> And what do you have a favourite Bible verse? Um, I've had many over the, the years. I think one of the ones that I often come back to is the Song of Songs 2, 10 to 14, of Come on, see, the winter has passed. And um, I think it, just that beautiful thing of God just says, I can shut doors and open doors. The winter's passed. Can you hear the new sounds? His singing, etc. Come on, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Come on, come out of the rock, the hidden places. And what I love is his first cry is, let me see your face, let me hear your voice. And then his response is, ooh, your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. He reverses it. And I, I so often say that intimacy with God is more than just being face-to-face. -face. It's also speaking. And any intimate relationship, we have to talk. And I think that... You know, God does talk to us, and that's his word. Mm. And he does want us then to talk to him. Mm. And so that's prayer. What a privilege we have to speak mm. to God in prayer, but what a privilege we have to speak to people with God's word. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, um, you mentioned prayer there. Um, I'm guessing there'll be folks that would listen to this that maybe struggle to pray. Mm. Um, how would you encourage someone or what would you say to someone that may come to you and say, you know, I, really, I know I should be praying, but I just struggle to pray. Can you give me some top tips? Yeah. I, th I think sometimes we sort of mystify prayer too much. Come back to the very simple thing of talk to God. 
about the issue and let then God talk to you about the issue. But don't moan at him constantly about it. Talk to God and just have that almost innocent childlike. I'm not a very complicated person in that sense. Um, but then what when you pray and it goes wrong? You, you know, you feel God spoke to you, pray for sins and they get healed and they die. Yes. You know, those sorts of things. Yes. It's awkward yes. because then you feel you've lost your integrity. Yes. And so God can't be wrong, so you must be wrong. But then yet in the essence of you think, but everything I know led me to that. So now I feel trapped. Mm. Those situations I think are hard and are always part of our journey in our relationship. I don't think I've met anyone who's got can tick that box, myself included. And so how do we handle that? I mean, I go to, um, you know, Hebrews 11, and where, you know, the women prayed back husbands who died in faith, you know, um, called them back into life. But then it also says in that passage in Hebrews that, you know, some saw it from afar, and there's this strange thing of the kairos of God, the timings of God, which are eternal, and the chronos of our life, which is historical moment by moment, and the collision of that, of how that works. Maybe more simply put, the end is not the end until it is the end. And sometimes that end is not just on earth, it is in heaven. And so in Hebrews 11, it says it's, you know, we see in part, we know in part. And it is that heavenly perspective that some die in faith, mm. having not yet seen the promise, but they see it from afar. Which afar? From heaven. Mm. Now, you shared, uh, I just want to say a couple of things about that. You shared uh, this morning about, was it your great-grandmother? Great-grandmother, yeah. Who was a, a praying lady, became a Christian. Yeah, in the Rhonda Valley Revival. <laughs> in the Rhonda Valley Revival in Wales. Yeah. Didn't live to see her anyone ch- saved. Any of her children saved. But actually, they were saved, weren't they? Yeah. Her grandson, who she'd given Bibles to, finally got saved. He turned around, saw all the other grandchildren saved. Then he saw his wife's family saved. Then all his children, all his grandchildren, and all his great grandchildren, which makes her great great grandchildren. But she must have died thinking, I did it wrong. But I bet she sits and she saw it from afar. Yeah, there you go. And I think the other thing to say, because I, like yeah. my husband, I was in the military, and and you know that can be a dangerous place, and people yeah. do get killed. Yeah. People who people are Christians, they get yeah. killed. And you think, well, hey, what's all that about? And actually, um, and we all go through difficult circumstances. And as you say, we we do pray. For, my sister died age fifty four of cancer. Yeah. And um, she had cancer for five years. She had thirty nine chemotherapies. Oh, and uh, I remember just literally seeing her two days before she died. She didn't know she was going to die in two days' time, but God just gave us that opportunity to talk. And she asked me the question. She said, what do you think about what I've been through? <laughs> it was like a holy moment. I didn't really know how to respond. So I said, her name's Caroline, but we call her Tots. I said, Tots, you know what? What you have done, what you have walked through these last five years with this wretched cancer has been incredible. You've fought it. You've done everything you possibly can. You've had all these chemotherapies. But I said, and I think this is, the Lord just gave me this to Satan. I said, but you know, one day we're all going to die. Yeah. But death is not the end. End, yeah. And and I shared the gospel with her. Yeah. At the end of which she said, you know what, I I believe that. I really believe that. Mm. And that came, I thought, she believes in the Lord Jesus. She believes that, you know, there's life to death, life to come. And 
as you say, we don't understand it all, uh, and um, there are wonderful men of God yeah. who die, what you and my mates really died too early. early you, know? Yeah. you know, they were doing so well. But actually, there is a hope mm. that we have God, haven't we? And I know that's easy to say, yeah. but it's not always... And it's hard to live through. But then you often think of Jesus, he died at 33. And so, you know, it's those sorts of things. And it doesn't make it easier when you're carrying the loss. But I think sometimes it gives a bigger perspective. And actually, the place I've come to settle it, I write, in fact, I've written a book, I Love Prayer, mm. and I can't remember if it's chapter six or seven, but I do the whole thing, mostly better written and more theological and explained of this whole thing of how do we process our integrity in prayer when it seems to go wrong. But suddenly when we look from heaven in that clarest moment, a lot of things that don't make sense, we suddenly realise aren't nonsense. Hmm. There is a purpose, hmm. because we're looking at the wrong perspective. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, we're living in interesting times in our nation. Yeah. Are we not? <laughs> um, uh, how would you describe the spiritual state of our nation? So we're looking at Dear Britain, of England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland. Yeah. I think we're in a really interesting season, because we're shaking. And I think the wonderful thing about shaking is it gives us opportunities. You know, we've got Brexit, we've got Boris as Prime Minister, we've got Trump in America, we've got all sorts of things in the political landscape that we wouldn't necessarily have ex expected and maybe some of us didn't vote for and aren't very happy about. Yeah. But all those things actually shake nations, shake systems and institutions mm -hmm. and give us an opportunity. So I, I suppose... One of my heart cries, if you like, is please don't get too political and let God take you above it. You know, come up here and I will show you because there's an open door and I will show you what is to come. And I do believe that these shakings, yes, bring a hopelessness, bring a depression in our everyday life of community out there. Yes. Uncertainty, Anxiety. fears, intimidation, etc. Yeah. But that is our opportunity that is where the church can step in and say, actually, Jesus is the hope for the nation. <laughs> you know, that is where, I, like, I love to say, you know, Isaiah 60, arise, shine, the light has come. Let's go turn the lights on. Let's not get political and talk the darkness and the schisms and the thing, but let's turn, go in the opposite spirit because we are called to be light in a dark place. Where there's hatred, we bring that love. Where there's hopelessness, we bring hope. Where there's that death, we bring a different story. So I think I'm excited. I think there's never been a greater time for the message of Jesus. And um, I've really found that people have a genuine hunger yeah. and are surprised by the Bible, how relevant it is, and actually it makes sense. So there you go. If you're listening to this and you're in all sorts of political arguments with friends or neighbours, then rise above it and use it as an opportunity to talk about Jesus. One last question yes. before we close. What is next for uh, Mr and Mrs Hickson? You've got two children, you've got six grandchildren. I, I haven't met a single grandparent that hasn't said it's wonderful. My eldest son got married <laughs> 10 months ago. Yes. Uh, I'm not allowed to mention to them about grandkids because my wife has banned me from mentioning it, so I'm hoping they're not listening to this. But um, what's next for you? Because we know there's no retirement in the, in the kingdom. kingdom. 
I don't really know. It's been an interesting time. My husband has had a real heart to reach out to the Muslims that live in our community, mm. unveiling Jesus to veil people and start the stories and journeys of so many who are God-fearing, God-knowing, but not father-understanding. And so he's busy with that sort of thing. Gordon and I found ourselves in a wonderful position of being mum and dad, so that we've handed over local church responsibility, and so we're not the pastor or the leader of a church, but we've got great people who are leading churches, but we've sort of become like grandparents. You know, when the kids are all being sick and the washing's out of control and the diapers are a thing and we're, we can't do it, we get the, we need help. And so we're finding ourselves in that beautiful situation of going in, training, mentoring. I suppose in these last, I mean, I'm about to be 60, we've married 40, Gordon next year will be 70 because we've got a bit of a gap. And we've, I sort of said to Gordon, what do you want to do? What, what will be the best thing we could do with the rest of our lives? That we said, actually live our life to make people look good. <laughs> live our lives. Lives to help make... people look good in well, their calling and their destiny. Well, maybe that's a word for, for all of us as we listen to this. Uh, Rachel, mm. it's been a real joy to talk to you. Um, and thank you for your faithfulness to God mm. and all that you have done, are doing, and I'm sure God has for you in the future. May God bless you. Yeah, well, thank you, dear Nigel, and your precious wife, Molly, and all you do with Preset. Because mm. I do believe this is a time for the ordinary person to eat that word, speak it, and change our landscape. Amen to that. Amen. You've been listening to the Bible and Me podcast from Preset Ministries UK. By leaving a rating or review, you can help us to reach a wider audience with the good news of God's grace and plans for his people. But otherwise, until next time, we hope you have a blessed week from all of us here at PMUK.